The use of online communication and consultation between doctors and their patients is becoming more common in everyday physician practice, so much so that there is a new buzzword to deal with this trend known as e-risk guidelines. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and joining me today is Dr. David Troxell. Dr. Troxell is medical director of The Doctors' Company, the nation's largest insurer of physician and surgeon medical liability, with more than 44,000 member physicians. In his role, Dr. Troxell has developed guidelines to help physicians successfully navigate telemedicine liability risks. He practiced pathology for more than 35 years and is clinical professor emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Troxell has published widely on risk management issues and speaks to state and national medical groups on a variety of these topics. Dr. Troxell joins us today from his offices in sunny Napa, California. David Troxell, welcome to Reach MD Radio on XM160. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So if you could, tell us a little bit about the doctor's company and these e-risk guidelines that you've developed and really how they came about in a company that a lot of people think is sells medical malpractice insurance. Well, the doctor's company is a very large medical malpractice insurance company. We currently insure about 45,000 physicians, and we're the largest malpractice insurer in the United States. And with so many physicians scattered throughout the United States, because we do have insured doctors everywhere, we need to communicate electronically with them and through the written documents that we prepare as well. Unlike a lot of the smaller companies that have most of their insured doctors in the same county or maybe in the same state and can rely more on personal face-to-face conversations. The e-risk guidelines that we're talking about today were initially developed in 2000 and have been updated three times and will be updated again this year. And initially, they were put together by the E-Risk Working Group for Healthcare, which is a consortium of medical malpractice liability carriers, medical societies, state medical societies, the AMA was represented, and representatives from state licensure boards. And so when these guidelines have come about, largely because more and more doctors, and, and I, I don't even know if we can say exactly how many doctors are using e-communications, but we do know that the whole buzz in healthcare, even with the Obama administration, is personal health records and electronic medical records. Absolutely. And I don't know how many physicians are, are using electronic communications today. I do know that we have email addresses for about half of the doctors we insure. I don't know if the other half haven't provided us with their email addresses or that they don't have them. And I would presume they probably don't have them. And with that, a lot of these physicians are increasingly using e-communications. I mean, are you finding that you're starting to see claims where they need to develop some guidelines on how to deal with email because they could enter a liability situation? I don't see claims where the primary reason for the claim is a telecommunications problem, but I often, or not often, but I not infrequently see claims where a issue related to telecommunications is an important consideration in how the claim is managed. That is, is it going to be aggressively defended in court or is, has it been compromised in some way by ill-thought-out telecommunications and therefore perhaps lead to a settlement? 
And some of the things your office sent me, because the technology of online communications introduces special concerns, I'm wondering if I could go over a few of them and, and our listeners can find out exactly potentially what doctors might find themselves up again. And one of them is maintain patient confidentiality. And if you could talk about uh, ways doctors could deal with that. Well, it's important to remember that electronic communications are subject to the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, so-called HIPAA, and I think most physicians are are familiar with it. And therefore, any uh, electronic communications should be conducted over a secure network that uses encryption and is compliant with HIPAA standards. And in particular, it's important that doctors know that standard email services do not meet HIPAA requirements. It's also important for the physician to have some protocol for authenticating the identity of the patient they're communicating with or a patient proxy, such as a parent for a minor child or an authorized family member. And there are mechanisms for doing this, but it should at least include documenting the patient's name, the date of authentication, the name of the staff member who authenticated the patient, and what means they used to do the authentication, because otherwise you may be sending an email to someone not authorized to receive the patient's health information. And I also noticed that the doctor's company advises that when sending a standard email, that they should add a disclosure to the bottom stating that the email is not secure and is not for use by patients or for healthcare purposes in general. I mean, is that is that something that you advise? Yeah, I advise that, especially if you're using a non-secure standard email service. I think that becomes very important. And it's also very important for clinicians to try to limit their online communications to a patient that they have previously seen and evaluated in their offices. There's a considerably increased risk and liability if you initiate a clinician-patient relationship online. This is often overlooked, but it's ideally suited best for an established patient that you know and can deal with issues that come up in terms of day-to-day management, etc., rather than trying to evaluate a patient that you can't see and examine personally. Well, if you're just joining us, or even if you're new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and joining me today is Dr. David Troxell, who is medical director of The Doctor's Company. If you don't know The Doctor's Company, they're the largest national insurer of physician and surgeon medical liability in the country. And one of the things that they're finding in the physicians they deal with and physicians across the country are e-communications, emails between physicians and patients and the potential liability risks that arise. And we were just talking about how to limit online communication. And I know, Dr. Troxell, one of the things you advise is is that these doctors, as busy as they are, prevent unauthorized computer access. And could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. uh, Keep in mind that that your computer, while it may be locked in an office at night, still can be accessed by uh, someone working in your office or even somebody who's cleaning out the office at night. So at at a very minimum, it should be password protected. This is something that doctors may not consider, but Keep in mind that you as a physician are responsible for protecting the confidentiality of your patient's information, and it should be treated just as you would a medical record, which I'm sure even the written medical record in most doctor's offices is in a locked uh, cabinet. 
And with everybody, including teenagers, everybody getting Blackberries and text messages and so forth, you guys also advise that patients, that doctors communicating with patients, they need to obtain informed consent, just like if they were in a, a clinical trial to do this. That's correct. And the informed consent is not merely a consent to enter into telecommunications. It's really informing the patient of the things that should be avoided on electronic communications. For example, you need to inform the patient that while you're making every attempt to protect their confidentiality, there's always the risk that it could be accessed by someone who's not authorized to see it. And therefore, electronic communications are not well suited for issues such as mental health, substance abuse, sexually transmitted diseases, drug and alcohol problems, HIV status, etc. In addition, it's not well suited for emergency subject matter. And our patients should be told this up front. And if they have chest pain, for example, or shortness of breath, high fever, they've had some physical trauma or they're pregnant and they're suddenly bleeding, that is not appropriate to use to communicate over the email. Instead, they should be told that if they have symptoms like this, they should immediately call the office or go to the closest emergency department. When do you think online communication should be used? I mean, if you talk about limiting it, and we've talked about a lot of the don'ts and so forth, what are the do's? I mean, should they just keep it as basic as possible? Should they, what should they do? It should be primarily used as a way of communicating back and forth between the patient and the physician for managing an existing condition. And it's ideally suited, obviously, for chronic diseases where the patient's Symptoms may vary from day to day, and they have a need to alert the physician that some particular symptom is occurring more frequently or becoming more severe, and they don't want to make a visit to the office for that. And the doctor already knows the patient, has an established relationship with them, and is in a position to evaluate it. It's especially important, as I mentioned, to try to limit the use of telecommunications to known patients that you have a relationship with. As soon as you stray into trying to evaluate a patient you've never seen before and don't know, you're really putting yourself in a very high-risk environment. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you certainly wouldn't want to start up a relationship with someone on Facebook if they friended you and then email them some medical advice. I mean, I think what you're trying to say is that they got to know these people. I mean, you might not even want to do this, uh, an e-communication with a brand new patient. Absolutely. And furthermore, even for a patient that's an established patient, if they call up with symptoms that would suggest a completely new condition unrelated to the condition you're treating them for or seeing them for, that's an indication that they should come to the office as well. You shouldn't really try to treat either a new patient or a new condition online. There are a couple of other traps that physicians can occasionally fall into. One is it's important that a email communication be very accurate, very professional, because it is very permanent. A lot of us think that when we delete something from our computer, it's gone. In fact, it's never gone. It's on the hard disk. All you've done is delete it from your desktop, and it can be recovered. Of course, we know politicians recently have learned that the hard way, but doctors occasionally learn it the hard way as well. So a good tip is don't put anything in an email that you wouldn't be comfortable seeing on the front page of your newspaper because, in fact, in a lawsuit, it might end up there. 
I noticed that you advise doctors to even be careful what they put on websites that are available to patients because, you know, in these competitive times, some physicians may want to advertise that they're ranked a certain way and and by a certain outfit, you know, as if to promote their expertise. But there are some dangers in this, aren't there? There absolutely are. You're right on with, you know, most physicians are working harder than ever, getting paid less than ever, and are many are reaching onto their website to advertise or promote products or to market their practices. But you have to be very careful about that because any communication of uh, advertising or promotional or marketing nature has the potential to unrealistically raise the patient's expectations. And recently there's been concerns expressed that if you're not careful, you could imply a warranty and potentially violate consumer protection laws if something goes wrong. I'm not aware of any actual cases where this has occurred yet, but I have seen a number of recommendations to physicians to be aware of this potential. And in our experience, this is potentially a risk factor when you're advertising or promoting cosmetic procedures, which more and more doctors are as they move into cosmetic medicine, or promoting off-label drug use or promoting a non-FDA-approved procedure. Certain specialties tend to do this more than others. Plastic surgeons in particular, obviously, are are more apt to deal with uh, cosmetic procedures, but as doctors uh, are reaching sometimes outside of their scope of practice into other fields, such as cosmetic medicine, they may fall into this trap as well. Well, online communication is certainly a phenomenon that we're going to hear more about in healthcare, and it's a good thing if it offers medical advice. But I'd like to thank Dr. David Troxell with the Doctors Company for sharing with us some of the risks involved, the e-risks, if you will, to online communication and consultation. And I'm Bruce Jackson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160 the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And I'd like to thank you today for listening.